This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Uh, welcome to our podcast on the COVID vaccine. And uh, with me, we have our special guest, uh, Leland, Dr. Leland Island, uh, who is the Chief of Infectious Disease at St. Vincent in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Leland, welcome to our podcast, and uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Dr. Allen, obviously, is uh, uh, an infectious disease. Uh, he's been really in the forefront of this fight against COVID. Um, I'm a cardiologist. I feel like more in the back seat and, and in, the back, in the background primarily. So we really owe it, you know, to you and, and uh, the people that you work with to really help, you know, our patients. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. So we have, uh, we'll talk about uh, the COVID vaccine today. And we know that to date, uh, there's, there's over 167 vaccines that are being worked on, uh, eight of which actually are undergoing and are going or starting a phase three clinical trials. Seems like the U.S. has set up this Operation Warp Speed, which is basically a collaboration of the Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA, and other federal, federal agencies to deliver 300 million doses of a safe and effective vaccine by 2021. Also, pharmaceutical companies are involved with this, and particularly AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, Novavax, Pfizer, just to name a few. FDA says that for any vaccine to be approved, it will need to prevent infection or decrease the severity of at least 50% of the people vaccinated. The goal is to inoculate enough people with a vaccine that immunity spreads throughout a community, the so-called herd immunity, so that 60 to 70% of the population would need to develop antibodies. So, uh, Dr. Allen, if you could maybe kind of describe, you know, for us, what is immunity and how does a vaccine work? Well, the process of vaccination started back in the 1800s when Jenner first realized that people who had been infected with cowpox had no smallpox. And so he generalized this to believe that there was some sort of immunity that was given. And so the first vaccines were really fortuitously discovered. But the idea is that by giving some priming of the immune system, you prevent the development of an infection or development of complications. And that priming has taken various forms through, through the years. At first, it was giving a different infectious agent that provided some cross-reactivity or cross-immunity, and then progressed up through the uh, polio vaccines where they were using attenuated viruses to infect people, you know, actually cause an infection, but with a virus that didn't cause a severe disease. And then we started giving inactivated viruses and then various proteins to try to stimulate the immune system to provide some protection. And so the idea is that by preparing the immune system to face a particular pathogen, we prevent that pathogen from causing problems. So that's um, obviously you're able to provide um, to, to provide some immunity to the individual. Um, the, uh, you, you bring in an antigen and uh, the, the body builds an immune response, builds some antibodies to it, and um, you, provide, you have, therefore, immunity against that antigen. That, that's correct. And, and the immunity happens in different ways. There are, I like to tell my patients when we're talking about the immune system that the immune system is not a uh, monolithic, homogeneous system. It's a number of parts that, are, that work together, and each part has a particular role. And so I, I think of the immune system kind of like I think of the Army the military, there are different roles that different 
sections of the military play. And so you have an air force, you have an artillery, you have ground troops, and each of those provide some different function in the overall, uh, in the overall functioning of the, of the military. For the immune system, there are lots of different parts of the immune system and different parts of the immune system are tasked with protecting us from different uh, types of pathogens. And so people think about antibodies with the immune system, and that's one aspect of the immune system. Sometimes developing antibodies alone doesn't provide any effective immunity. Uh, There are other parts of the immune system, the cell-mediated immunity or or the the cellular immunity that involves T cells and uh, natural killer cells and so forth also provides some some very important protections uh, against certain pathogens. And so one of the goals of vaccination and immunization is to try to target the parts of the immune system that are specifically responsible for defending our, defending us against uh, certain pathogens. And so, for instance, with viral infections like the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, uh, virus, that antibody production will be important, but the development of cell-mediated immunity is going to be very important also, both for uh, managing acute infections and also for providing long-term benefits. And that's that's been one of the challenges in vaccines through the years is that we can generally make people develop antibodies against things. For instance, in HIV research, we've been able, we were able very early to create antibodies in people against various parts of the uh, HIV virus but they weren't protective against infection or protection, protective against the development of disease. It, it's a more, uh, it requires a more comprehensive development of immunity. And so far we haven't been able to do that. And so one of the challenges in developing any vaccine and, and especially a vaccine for COVID-19 is, is truly defining what it takes to, to be immune to COVID-19 and, how we can stimulate those parts of the immune system. Um, and some of that is work that's ongoing. We don't. We know in general that coronaviruses overall require antibodies and, humor, and uh, cell-mediated immunity, but we don't know how much of each is required to, to give good immunity, and we certainly don't yet know how durable that immunity is going to be. So it's a challenging field to develop a vaccine for this, and we're doing a lot of learning on the fly. So um, we're trying to develop some immunity or, or mechanism of defense for the individual. How do we, what, what do we call, what is herd immunity? Well, herd immunity is actually the concept that if enough people in a particular community are immune to a certain disease that there just won't be any passage of that in the they're not there's not gonna be enough susceptible individuals in that community to sustain uh, transmission of a virus and so even the unvaccinated people in a community that has good herd immunity probably are going to be protected just because the virus isn't going to be present um this was one of the issues, for instance, with measles uh, and measles vaccination in the past that we had developed pretty good herd immunity in the population, but vaccination rates have have waned over the past uh, decade or so because of people wanting to opt out of vaccination and also uh, influx of unvaccinated people. And so Last year, we saw some pretty good outbreaks of measles where we had not seen that before uh, because all of a sudden there were more susceptible people and uh, the virus was able to get into the non-susceptible population and there was enough, there were enough susceptible people to sustain transmission. So herd immunity is, is very important in the, uh, in the overall protection of a population, meaning that we don't have to vaccinate 100% of the population 
as long as we can get a good portion of that population will will be very effective there's obviously some some individual some patients that have <clears throat> that are immunocompromised or or even the newborn that are less than six months old that are not really candidate for vaccination so it's very important to have enough of the population vaccinated uh, so that you know they provide this kind of immunity and and uh, the disease will not propagate you know to the patient that are most at risk and cannot that's absolutely correct yeah. so taking a vaccination just in the broader sense taking a vaccination is not just an individual choice it is a it is it is a choice that you are helping to provide some greater good to the community yeah and particularly important for us uh, with our cardiac patient also a lot of them are immunocompromised uh, just because they are so sick well we talk about you know covid i mean right now we have um, probably uh, just in the united states um uh, five and a half million uh you know patients that have that have been infected with covid um and obviously we have a very large population Certainly, we could get some immunity if we have enough people infected, but we sure wouldn't want to have millions of people, um, you know, more people being infected. Um, you know, num- number one, I think it would really kind of increase the, the number of patients would be at risk of dying, would totally overwhelm our system, and therefore, uh, the very important, uh, you know, f- vaccination program that is about uh, to get started and talking about the COVID, you know, 19 vaccine. Um, eight of which are currently in clinical trial. Uh, could you tell us, um, Leland, about the, um, the vaccine? I mean, there's several ways, uh, multiple ways to make vaccines. And the, uh, obviously, you've described a little bit uh, earlier uh, using whole virus that are, have been weakened or inactivated. Um, but there's many other new ways now to make vaccine, uh, some of which actually were uh, are going to have the benefit of it. I mean, if you think about it, the first infection with uh, COVID-19 was in, in China in December 2019. Already in January, uh, they had deciphered the genome of the virus and vaccines are, were starting to be made in, in March. So what, what is the uh, what are the different kind of vaccines do we have for COVID-19? There, there are several different ways and, and some of them are quite fascinating from a from a technical standpoint obviously sort of the oldest easiest way and there are a couple of these trials going on uh, in China uh, where they are simply taking the virus and killing it or inactivating it and giving that to giving that to patients as a vaccination so just the whole killed virus and that's been done with other viruses with pretty good success in the past. But some of the newer technology involves genetic manipulation. And so, for instance, there are uh, there are a couple of studies out there uh, looking at taking genes, specific genes from uh, COVID-19 and putting them into other viruses that aren't as bad. And, and specifically the gene or the protein that everybody is using is this protein called the spike protein. And if you've seen a cartoon or if you've seen a electron uh, micrograph of a coronavirus, that it has this halo around it, the crown, which is where we get coronavirus. And those, that crown is made up of a, of a specific protein on the surface called the spike protein. And it, induces a pretty good pretty good immune response and it's one of the things that's required both for attachment of the virus to susceptible host cells but it's also a good target for antibody immunity so what they have done is they have taken the gene that encodes the spike protein and uh, transfected it into adenoviruses and adenoviruses are common human viruses that do cause some disease, but typically more in the cough and cold kind of problem and not in the, in the immunocompetent uh, population. Adenoviruses are not generally considered to be a huge problem as far as mortality. 
And so they take an adenovirus and, and have it specifically express this gene for the spike protein and give it to patients. And therefore, the virus infects the patient and causes the creation of this spike protein, which the body then uh, recognizes and develops an immune response to. And that's uh, there are a couple of adenovirus-based uh, vaccines floating around out there. And then probably the newest, neatest technology uh, is mRNA vaccines. And here at St. Vincent's, we're going to be starting a an actual trial, and this is the Moderna product, uh, which is a vaccine where messenger RNA is actually injected into the into uh, the patient. And messenger RNA is a secondary mediator in the protein synthesis uh, pathway for basically any type of cell, whether it's a virus or a, a human cell. And it it is how the genetic material sets out a blueprint or a template for actual protein to be produced. And so the messenger RNA in and of itself is not infectious and it carries no risk of uh, inserting itself into human genes uh, or causing any kind of problems with manipulation of, of the patient's uh, genetics. But instead you just give this mRNA, it gets into cells and the set and it's the mRNA that also encodes the spike protein from the coronavirus. And so it, um, basically causes our own cells to create the spike protein, which again is recognized as a foreign protein and immunity is developed. And then the mRNA is degraded and it goes away and, and it's not a problem. And so you you get rid of the, you get rid of the genetic material. You still have some immunity that hopefully has developed against the specific protein that we're looking for. And you don't run into the problems with um, genetically altered viruses that that an adenovirus might actually cause a disease in the patient that you're giving it to. So it's really new and exciting technology. This we've we don't have a human mRNA vaccine yet that has been approved, but we think that the technical challenges that have precluded use of mRNA vaccines have hopefully been taken care of and we'll be able to do this. And, and this has wide reach, reaching implications for vaccine development going forward, not just for COVID-19, but for whatever else comes, comes down the pike in the future. So um, <clears throat> this vaccine, for example, the mRNA vaccine was tested in, in animals in the preclinical studies. And then in phase one and phase two, which I think were just published recently, right? That is correct. And, and basically, it was able to produce a lot of antibodies that were detected. Um, but we don't know how long these antibodies last, right? Right. And so the the big questions that will have to be will have to be answered in the trials, uh, you know, going forward over time. And and these are the kinds of things, obviously, that only time is going to tell. Is one when when we have antibodies and some degree of cellular immunity is that going to protect the patient from the development of disease or protect the patient from infection because one of the things that happens with some vaccines is that that a patient can still become infected with a particular pathogen but the disease that it causes is is much less severe or the death rate goes down even though there are infections. And so those are good, you know, obviously we'd like to prevent as many infections as possible, but if we're not preventing infections, but we're preventing death, that's, that's a pretty good outcome also. So uh, obviously we need to know if giving this vaccine and if creating these antibodies is going to, to prevent infection or reduce morbidity or mortality. And also we've got to find out how long uh, these vaccines are, are good for. Um, we know that 
with a lot of vaccines, with some vaccines, you get a vaccination and it's good for life. For instance, if you get two, ser- two doses of hepatitis A vaccine, you're protected for life. But with, um, with other vaccines, this is why we have to give tetanus boosters. And this is you know, why we have to revaccinate people for, other, for a lot of other pathogens because that, uh, the immunity wanes over time. So, you know, those, those are questions that still have to be answered uh, and will only be answered over the next few years, really. So um, the, in the phase one and phase two, you know, trial, they, they were able to detect a good response. Uh, was there any side effects that, that were actually found? I, I agree it's kind of a, a small number of patients, but uh, still that's the best, the only experience we have. Right. We think, at least with the Moderna product, that some GI illness and obviously some injection site problems um, were were problematic. But but it uh, we think it's going to be a fairly safe and well tolerated vaccine. Uh, obviously, again, you know, it's been given to a very limited number of patients and the the Moderna trial, for instance, is going to try to enroll 30,000 patients. So we'll have a much larger sample size that we'll be able to detect less frequent side effects. So the phase three um, clinical trial is starting, you know, next this week um, at St. Vincent. Uh, so uh, maybe we'll, we should kind of discuss who is a candidate for this and, um, and where do we go uh, to get the information to enrolled if we have some uh, volunteers that are interested? Sure. Um, the, the candidates, obviously, if you're going to test a vaccine, um, the ideal candidates would be people who are at risk because we want, we're not infecting anybody. So we would like to see people who are, uh, who are in higher risk categories, both in higher risk for, uh, becoming infected or being exposed to COVID, but also people maybe who are at higher risk for developing complications. So we'll entertain anybody, but obviously we're looking to enroll people who are older, uh, maybe who have some comorbidities that would put them at increased risk, like chronic lung disease or um, heart disease or some sort of immune deficiencies. And then um, obviously people who are in positions where they are more exposed. So uh, obviously somebody who is sheltering in place in a cabin in the woods and (laughs) hasn't seen another live body for three months is probably not the ideal candidate for us. So Healthcare workers uh, would be healthcare very workers would be exposed. Mm. Healthcare workers would be great. Teachers, unfortunately, are going to be in that that higher risk category. Um, people who are considered essential workers, uh, but also people who are choosing not to shelter in place. Uh, you know, we we all have friends who are hand waving the uh, the recommendations to to social distance and they're going, going forward with their life full speed ahead. And not surprisingly, those are the people that we ultimately are seeing in, in our clinics and in the hospital. So those, those are people that, that would be better suited for the trial. Again, uh, we, we have a screening process. Uh, If you're interested in the trial, you can send an email right now. You can send an email to STVHS clinical trials, at ascension.org uh, and somebody will contact you. Once we actually get the study up and running, there'll be a website that you can get to through Moderna. Uh, but we closed down our, we had some logistical problems getting launched. We thought we were going to get this going a few weeks ago at St. Vincent's. Um, and so we had a website up and going, but we took it down because we felt it was the wrong thing to do to have patients expecting to be uh, vaccinated and then keep pushing back. But we actually got our product day before yesterday. So we're, we're ready to go and we'll start seeing patients this week. We're talking about vaccination, uh, how important it is, and particularly for our cardiac patients, 
obviously you've been treating these patients every day, Leland. Uh, can you tell us uh, just kind of briefly uh, what kind of cardiac complications uh, that you've seen actually in the patients you treat um, and, and other complications such as, you know, pulmonary and so forth. And, and even with people that recover, what kind of sequelae do they, you know, do we find months later? Well, one of the interesting things about this is that it is, it is most certainly not just a respiratory disease. This is a, this is a whole patient disease and, and you can find complications in every system in the body. And some of those are complications of just the general uh, inflammatory state. Uh, we know that anytime somebody gets an infection uh, and the body's total inflammatory system is revved up, that that increases complications in all other systems of the body. You know, for instance, with cardiovascular disease, the inflammatory state in the body is a prothrombotic state, and so patients will, are more likely to develop thrombosis, so an acute coronary syndrome. Uh, and that is not just for COVID-19, that's for just about any viral disease. So we, this is why we see problems with uh, during flu season. You see cardiovascular complications go up in, in flu season. Um, but we've seen a fair number of people that have, that have pulmonary embolisms, uh, deep venous thrombosis, again, related to the prothrombotic state. Uh, the latest thing that came out uh, last week or two weeks ago is there's a uh, Boston Red Sox pitcher that developed uh, myocarditis from COVID-19. And there are several case reports of, uh, of patients developing a, an acute uh, myocarditis cardiomyopathy uh, involving COVID-19. There was a study in, I think, JAMA Internal Medicine that came out last week or two weeks ago that looked at uh, ST elevation MI mortality during the COVID epidemic up in uh, New York. And what they found was that over the sort of over the past month or so that the, the numbers were staying the same, but the mortality in ST elevation MI had gone up. And one thing they didn't do in there was really stratify for who actually had COVID-19 and who didn't, but taking the population, it was, it was alarming to see that, that it seemed to have a higher mortality. So I, I think from a cardiovascular standpoint, in painting with the broadest brush, it's never good if you have underlying heart disease to get sick with anything, uh, because underlying congestive heart failure, uh, angina, all of those things are going to to get worse because of the metabolic strain that having a systemic infection puts on the body. And when you couple that with uh, the significant hypoxemia that these patients sometimes develop, that, that just is a recipe for disaster from a cardiac standpoint. Have there um, have they been any autopsy studies showing the actual virus in, uh, in the cells of the myocardium or or the vasculature? Uh, I don't know about the myocardium. Um, I know that that there have been some suggestions that there are that there's an actual vasculitis, and that's been one of the uh, suggestions about the, the pathogenesis of the pulmonary disease. That it's actually a pulmonary vasculitis that happens. Uh, I'm not sure about myocardium, though. I have not seen that. It certainly doesn't mean it <laughs> it hasn't happened. It's one of the one of the amazing things over the past five months is the amount of just the amazing output of literature, uh, some of it just fascinating and amazing, and some of it absolute uh, junk that has been published <laughs> regarding this. And I, I don't know anybody who can keep up with all of it. Yeah. Probably impossible. I know we're, we're wanting to talk about prevention primarily, but we want to focus also <clears throat> and emphasize how important this is very uh, a deadly infection and uh, it's so important to prevent it. 
uh, we, there are some, you know, treatment that have been, you know, coming to the forefront. Unfortunately, the studies have been also, uh, you know, difficult, um, but it looks like remdesivir, if, if given early, can shorten the disease. Uh, it looks like steroids has a role. Um, what other, how are we doing with the treatment of COVID-19? Well, obviously there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm early on for uh, for Plaquenil, uh, for hydroxychloroquine. Uh, that has not been borne out in prospective trials. And uh, there have been some retrospective studies that have been done. Um, obviously, retrospective studies are never as good as a prospective study because it's just impossible to it's impossible to control for everything and in this case there was the studies that were done just didn't control for some things for instance there was a big study of Plaquenil that came out of Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit that retrospectively did show a a benefit to taking Plaquenil unfortunately that uh, study didn't control for steroid use and and steroids I think have been shown pretty conclusively to be helpful so the prospective studies done with with hydroxychloroquine have not shown any any benefit you know there's a concern obviously again from the cardiovascular standpoint of hydroxychloroquine and prolonged QT syndromes but that surprisingly has been not a huge problem either, not as bad of a problem as it probably could have been. There were some people early on, myself included, who used hydroxychloroquine in combination with azithromycin. That is really throwing water on the drowning man uh, in terms of, of arrhythmia potential. And so I think the FDA put out a pretty sharp warning about don't do that because that's two drugs that can prolong the QT. Uh, so I think the Plaquenil ship has sailed. Uh, I, I don't think there is good science that would reasonably support its use. Remdesivir had some promise in the beginning, but again, I think the more we use it, uh, we're not seeing just miraculous turnarounds. And some of that is figuring out the timing on when to give remdesivir. Um, obviously, with most antivirals, the earlier you give them, the better uh, the response is going to be. And so ideally, the time to give remdesivir is probably before the patient is symptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, it just theoretically from looking at how antivirals function, Obviously, that's not going to happen. So we have been trying to limit our remdesivir use to people fairly early on in the disease process, seven to 10 days after the onset of illness. And beyond that, I don't think it's really going to help. Um, and we, don't, we haven't yet seen a mortality benefit that has been, that has been uh, significant with remdesivir. So I think the role of remdesivir is still being determined. There were a couple of other drugs that were given. One of the things that we've noticed about the clinical course of the disease is there's an initial phase where this is probably a viral syndrome, like any other viral syndrome that we've all expected. The patients feel terrible and all this, and this is caused by direct viral circulation. But there seems to be a second wave of the illness that comes on 10 to 14 days after the initial uh, wave. And that is probably less of a viral problem and more of an inflammatory problem, this uh, hyperinflammatory syndrome. And so there was some thought early on that using um, inflammatory modulators, and the one that got a lot of use was uh, tocalizumab, which is a, an inhibitor or blocks the IL-6 receptors and it was thought that this would blunt the uh, this hyperinflammatory syndrome, and I've used a fair amount of it. My clinical experience on it was that it helped patients for about 12 hours, and then it went away. The company that makes it was actually doing some studies, and 
I think three weeks ago, they stopped all of their studies after an interim analysis because they found no benefit to it. So I think that that's probably not going to end up being a, an option. There are some other uh, monoclonal antibody-based products that also deal with the interleukin blockade that might theoretically have some benefit, but uh, there are none of them that are in common use right now. I think going back to what works, I think being able to deliver oxygen as best as we can is is important. And so using half-low oxygen in these patients and being able to maximize their oxygenation um, without putting them on a ventilator. And so we, in our institution, we're using uh, BiPAP, but run through a ventilator circuit, so it's a closed circuit, and we're not aerosolizing virus into the into the environment. Has been very effective, uh, and then prone ventilation has actually been very effective at improving oxygenation, uh, even in patients that aren't on a ventilator. Uh, just having them lie on their stomach changes the changes the hemodynamics in the lungs, and it really does seem to improve oxygenation. And then, of course, steroids. We we think there's a pretty good benefit to steroids. So <clears throat> the treatment uh, are not that great. And uh, so if we could prevent, that's probably a whole lot better. That, now, that, is, that is absolutely correct. You, this is a disease that you don't want to get. Right. Now, we have, I mean, obviously, several patients have gotten the disease. It was very mild. They've recovered from it. Now, we're not that far into this pandemic yet, but, you know, is there, are there some cases where um, the patient got reinfected and uh, got sick a second time, or, or we just don't have enough um, data? Well, obviously, that's an important question to ask because it really circles back to the question of whether or not vaccination is potentially effective, because if having the actual disease doesn't protect you from getting it again, then providing an effective vaccine is going to be extremely challenging. And it's it's actually been kind of a more difficult process than you might have expected to identify when patients get reinfected uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the whole problem of how do you test for this virus. And I know testing is a buzzword that has just saturated the news cycle from from almost the beginning. But testing has really been problematic because in the testing is challenging from a logistical standpoint. It is challenging from an availability standpoint. And it's challenging from a sensitivity standpoint. The tests that we are using now, we are finding may be more sensitive than we need. The PCR-based tests can remain positive for long after the patient, you know, maybe a couple of months after the patient has completely recovered from their illness. And we don't, we don't exactly know how to interpret a positive PCR-based test. The question is, is this patient sick with this virus? If they come in and get retested, say my employer won't allow me back to work until I have a negative test. When we do this test, patient's been completely asymptomatic for a couple of weeks, but their test is positive. Does that mean that the patient is infected again? Probably not. Does that mean that the patient is contagious to everybody else, which is the real reason that we would want to know, you know, before letting somebody go back to work, do they pose risk to their environment? And the answer to that is we don't think so, but all we have is this positive test. The test that we use to diagnose them to begin with is still positive. And so what we think is that what's being picked up on that test is not replication-competent virus. It may be viral residue or it may be attenuated virus, but using some other mechanisms, and the CDC has referenced this in in a big update they did about three weeks ago to their return to work criteria, uh, that they have some data that the virus is probably not uh, present in a contagious form, you know, seven to 10 days after the onset of symptoms, even if the test remains positive. So we haven't seen, like I haven't personally seen people who 
I think have gotten over the disease and gotten sick again. I've seen plenty of people that we treated early on in their viremic phase, they got better, you know, see them two or three days after onset of symptoms, they get better, and then they get readmitted a week or 10 days later now with this hyperinflammatory stage. And so we see that, but we haven't seen anybody that was infected back in April that's come back in in July with, I was fine and now I'm sick again. What we do see, though, are patients that get sick and really have a prolonged convalescent period, that they get better in terms of their fever's gone away, maybe their cough is better, maybe their oxygen requirements are less, or maybe they're not requiring supplemental oxygen. But at the same time, they have a prolonged fatigue, their exercise tolerance is gone, um, they might have a persistent cough that lasts for months. It's just kind of a mild, nagging, hacking cough. And, you know, they, these people may also have some prolonged increased risk of thromboembolic events. Uh, again, that's the kind of thing that we'll find out over the course of the next three or four years where we have long data sets to look at. But we think that, that patients really can have a prolonged convalescent phase that takes a long time to get over. And it's not that they're persistently viremic. It's just that the, the virus and the inflammatory response to the virus has done enough damage to their body that it really takes a toll. And there was even, there was this study, I think it was published in Gemma, uh, that you probably saw it, in Germany, where they you know, performed cardiac MRI, uh, finding mm-hmm. some evidence of scarring. Uh, and some of the patients That's that right. had recovered, you know, from COVID. That's right. um, and, and that probably represents, a, I would say, a subclinical myocarditis that we just didn't recognize because of all of the other stuff that was going on in the patient. As you are well aware, uh, not everybody gets a cardiac MRI. That's a challenging thing to do, especially with patients on, you know, 50% closed face mask oxygen. So, um you know, these are incidental findings that we see in patients that then trigger us to say, okay, what was going on back when the patient was really sick? Um, and circle back around and say, okay, well, maybe this is a problem that we just didn't recognize at the time. Right. Coming this, back. I'm sorry. Coming no, I was going to say, this is just all the the things that require time. You know, we, we would like to have all the answers up front, but really you have to have the lens of time in order to really determine what was going on and what's, what's really going on with the patient. A year or two, probably. Yes. Um, coming back to the test, I mean, it seems like it would be more helpful to have a less sensitive test to be um, able to maybe help more people. Um, there's this mention about this, just this saliva test that, you know, could be implemented, um, you know, much easier a little bit less sensitive, but maybe it could be uh, more helpful in this situation. It, that, that is absolutely correct, because you really want a, a test to answer two questions. One is, does the patient have the disease? And two, uh, is the patient contagious? You know, with, with coronavirus, those are the two most important questions to answer with the test. And um, so in, in our case, our current testing it doesn't always help us answer that second question. Well, it doesn't answer the second question at all. And and the first question is a challenge just for logistical reasons. Here at St. Vincent's, we're very lucky in that we have enough capacity that we can get pretty rapid turnaround on tests. But if you go to a walk-in clinic and get a coronavirus test and they're not able to provide you with an answer for six or seven days because of the turnaround time on their testing, why did you even get the test? You know, that's not helpful for anybody. And so the salivary test that you talked about, the advantages to that test are that it's cheap. Uh, and that I think at least one of them that I've heard of has about a 15 minute turnaround time with minimal investment in lab. So you could at least get an answer back very quickly. And it does have a less, a lower sensitivity, but as I mentioned earlier, that might not be the worst thing in the world. You have 
if, if it's only detecting high levels of viral burden, those are the patients that are most likely to be contagious. And so those are the patients that you would really want to concentrate on keeping away from uh, susceptible individuals and putting them in quarantine as much as possible. And obviously that's all a theoretical discussion because none of that has really been borne out in clinical trials. But but if you had a test that was cheap and quick and was able especially to, to identify people that are at risk of transmitting to others, that would be the ideal thing to do in big populations of people like school-age kids or nursing home patients where you've got a high potential for spread, and so you can isolate those people from the group quickly. Well, uh, Leland, I, I treat a, a patient of population at risk, and um, and we have this COVID, and I'm, I'm so happy that the trial is starting, you know, with the vaccine, but obviously we're not going to find, uh, you know, any you know answer for the next several months. I mean, possibly uh, have some answer by the end of the year. But in the meantime, there's the flu season, you know, coming on, uh, which is already, um, you know, if we look at 2018, 2019, the flu season was considered moderate, and yet it affected 35 million Americans who fell sick, mm-hmm. with almost uh, half a million were hospitalized, and over 34,000 people died. And this occurred while 170 million doses of vaccine were administered. So... How do you think this COVID uh, flu season uh, is going to play out? Um, <laughs> well, the, even taking COVID out, asking anybody in August how the flu season is going to play out is just about like going to Las Vegas with a pocket full of money. Just don't know. Uh, we always hope that it's going to be a mild flu season, but you never know when this is going to be be the bad one. And so... I would say that we could have the best case scenario would be this is a mild flu season uh, and the social distancing measures that everybody's putting into place for COVID are also going to secondarily impact risk for uh, transmission of influenza. Uh, And at the same time, we hopefully continue to see a downward trend in COVID infections. And so, the best case scenario is this ends up being a pretty mild season for cold and flu. The worst case scenario is that we have a bad flu season, a bad flu strain come through. Uh, we have a bad mismatch between the uh, vaccine strains and what actually ends up circulating. And the coronavirus picks up also at the same time. And then we have a situation where we've got probably not just a uh, an additive effect, but probably a multiplicative effect of the two, because what we know, what we saw very early on in uh, in the coronavirus epidemic was that people were worried about COVID, and so they were delaying care for other problems. Uh, you all saw this in cardiovascular disease, yes. and, and it was seen across the board that people just couldn't or didn't go to the doctor for problems that should have been seen and and it became problematic. And so, you know, if we're having a bad coronavirus outbreak, then people are going to be less willing to go seek health care. Health care may not be available. If we have capacity problems in hospitals, then then it really could be an exponential problem and we could have a really bad bad cold and flu season. So I don't know. I'm praying for the, I'm praying for the former. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm happy to see that at least there's a lot of play, a lot of things in place to prevent um, infection. You know, for example, the mask, uh, the distancing, the washing the hands. I mean, there's been such a strong emphasis to prevent the COVID virus, but it's also a very great mechanism to prevent uh, acquiring the flu. Absolutely, they are they are they're different, totally different viruses, but but the transmission properties are the same. It's it's respiratory droplets, it's contact with infected surfaces, and so the things that we do to protect ourselves from COVID are the things that we need to do to protect ourselves from influenza. Plus, we have the added benefit of being able to vaccinate against influenza, and it's not 
you know, it's it's a terrible vaccine in the grand scheme of things uh, in terms of its protection, but it's but still it's effective at reducing uh, morbidity and mortality. And I, I just can't strongly urge people enough to get a flu vaccine. Yeah. So let's talk about the flu vaccine a little bit. I mean, there's also different forms of the flu vaccine. You have like the egg base. Uh, I don't know if it's still used uh, anymore. There's the, the cell base and the one that we're talking about with COVID with recombinant DNA. So what, you know, in the flu shot that we give, uh, what's the most popular and, and uh, what works the best? Uh, what works the best is the one that actually gets out of the vial and into the patient. Uh, as, uh, as one author I read said that a vaccine is worthless until it becomes a vaccination. And, and that is the, that is the truest thing I've ever said, because we just, you know, the challenge of getting something into people is really helpful. And honestly, I, I think they're all pretty well effective, um, Equally, one has not been shown to be more effective than the other. And I think if you go to your doctor or you go to your local pharmacy, you're going to get what they have uh, rather than that. Now, the the vaccine that we generally are using now is a quadrivalent vaccine, which means it protects against four different types of flu. And over the last few years, we've started to uh, present a higher dose vaccine for patients that are at high risk of flu complications, uh, patients over 65, patients with other comorbidities. And that's probably probably going to turn out to be a better vaccine in that higher risk population. Uh, but again, the important thing is to get a vaccine. Right. So if you're six months old or older, you should get a vaccine, but can you get all the vaccine? I mean, some of the vaccines, you have to be 18 years old. Um, um, the, the, the vaccines are available for, for anybody now. Uh, live virus vaccines, which there, there used to be a live flu vaccine called flu mist that they have now taken off the market. Um, so that was, that was a live attenuated virus and, we didn't recommend it for people who had any kind of immune compromise, but as far as the vaccines that are available now, uh, you should talk to your doctor, but basically everybody is eligible for it. Yeah. Well, a lot of uh, family physician, you know, uh, practice telemedicine, uh, certainly during the flu season, it's time to reopen the door and, and be able to give the flu shot or are we going to have different, we're going to have drive through, flu shot or uh, how are we going to, how do you see this kind of uh, work out in the, during this well, season? Interestingly, flu vaccine is available right now, uh, which is earlier than, than it's ever been. Uh, but part of that is, is because the early on in the COVID uh, epidemic, even I think back as early as January and February, uh, people realized that this was going to be a problem for this upcoming cold and flu season. And really, just as an aside, manufacturing flu vaccine really is a year-long process. It, it is something that there are already people now starting to work on the 2021-2022 vaccine. So uh, just trying to identify how you know, what strains we're going to put in the vaccine and so forth. Um, but they identified very early on. And so there was a push by the government to really ramp up production so that we, so that we got the vaccine out, didn't try to avoid any hiccups and uh, produce more vaccine this year than, than, uh, than we had before. Um, so as a result, we have vaccine available right now, if you want, and I think you can go to your, local CVS or Walgreens and, and get it. Now, I don't, it may be a little early because flu vaccine is like some other vaccines and the immunity wanes. And so it may be better to wait until next month before you get it. Cause we didn't really haven't seen much flu circulating. Um, but 
I think there is going to be plenty of vaccine available in multiple uh, multiple venues. Uh, and as far as a drive-through vaccine clinic, I haven't heard of one, but I suspect that somebody somebody will come up with that <laughs> come up with that product pretty quickly. <laughs> especially if there's any money to be made from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly um, it will be very important for, for us healthcare workers right. as well as our patient, you know, to get uh, the flu shot. Right. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, getting the flu. How, as a physician, how, we, how, how are we going to be able to tell whether someone has got COVID or someone has got the flu? I mean, it's really going to be uh, uh, difficult. It, it, it will be difficult. Um, you know, obviously, with any viral illness, whether you're talking about COVID or flu, there is a lot of art to that medicine um, in addition to the science. And so um, you you sort of combine the art of bedside diagnosis and history and physical with looking at the epidemiology, literally what is circulating in the, in the community right now. Uh, and it's not completely ruling out one or the other but um, it is, um, it's going to be looking at what's circulating in the community. In addition, there, you know, there's, we do have pretty good flu testing right now. And a lot of the platforms that, that allow COVID testing right now are going to have a product that will come out in the next month or so that will have a, a combined COVID and flu uh, test, so you can do one swab and and get an answer for both. I know that Cepheid is going to have that product, and as a matter of fact, they're going to quit making standalone COVID tests available and and only make a hybrid COVID influenza test um, to try to sort this out to make this to help answer that question appropriately. But again, the the issue is going to be testing availability and turnaround time on it. And, and that's been a bugaboo in a number of cases. Right. So for the patients that are going to sign up for the COVID testing, uh, it's not going to be a problem to have the flu shot? Oh, no, 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 no. We, we are absolutely encouraging patients to have flu shot and any other appropriate vaccinations. Maybe uh, we'll be able to give uh, COVID vaccine by the end of the year, you think, or... Uh, well, the FDA has has set a goal of having a vaccine in place by the end of the year. I I think that is very ambitious, but there has been a tremendous amount of money and labor that has been poured into this. So we may have a vaccine. And again, only time is going to tell how effective and good it is. And I suspect what we'll end up doing is have the FDA will end up approving multiple vaccines. As you said at the beginning, there are multiple vaccines that are in trials right now using different methodologies. And I think that they're going to approve as many as they can so that we get some real world experience with this. And then over the next five to 10 years, something will shake out. This one works. This one really doesn't. This one's better than that one. And, and we'll just see. Well, it should be interesting to watch also what happens in Russia, uh, where they uh, they approved the vaccine without any phase three That's clinical right. trials. So, um, you know, Putin's viral vaccine. Yeah, right, we'll find out. So, a lot to find out. Uh, we don't know whether we're going to need a booster or not. <clears throat> we don't know whether we're going to need a COVID vaccine every year. You know, the way we we need for the, the flu. Uh, of course, we need it every year of the flu because it changes all the time. It does change. Uh, I don't think we should expect this uh, COVID-19 vaccine, start COVID-2, to change that much. You know, the interesting thing about any vaccination, and I've, I made this point up front when we first started talking about trying to come up with a vaccine, is that coronaviruses before COVID and before SARS before it, coronaviruses were well known as a common cause of the common cold. Um, and that's where, that's where, uh, that's where we knew coronaviruses from. I mean, coronaviruses, rhinoviruses, some adenoviruses um, are really, uh, are really common cold viruses. And so what we are basically to put, to put the vaccine challenge into perspective, what we are basically trying to do is, 
since the beginning of the year come up with a vaccine for the common cold. Um, and, and so in medicine, we know what the challenges are in doing that. Uh, but we've really come, you know, we've really made some progress, which is just astonishing considering how, um, how challenging dealing with the common cold has been forever. Yeah. Well, uh, Leland, uh, obviously we, um, it's going to be very interesting to start the clinical trial on, on the COVID vaccine. Uh, it's going to be an interesting season. And, and, um, let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, let's, well, interesting maybe, is never good. <laughs> interesting, maybe for the better. Uh, but I, I don't see um, a whole lot of sleep in your future. Uh, you know, uh, you, you're going to be a busy man uh, within the next uh, several months. And, and we appreciate so much what you do, the guidance, and, um, and the taking care of all of our patients. Um, so thank you very much for this, well, thank uh, you. Dr. It's Allen. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.